0: I'd like to talk about the bodhisattva path tonight. and um, Bodhisattva meaning awakening being and the understanding being that um, every one of us, all of us here, are bodhisattvas, are awakening beings. And um, that in these last days of being on retreat together, we're really exploring a kind of fullness of dharma. We're exploring in a, in a personal way, the different layers that come up, you know, the meeting our the physical predicament of being in these bodies and the different emotions and weather systems and, and encountering within us as we do the practices, our relationships with others. And so this is what I call the personal. And we've also been exploring the universal, like that essential awareness, the purity of awareness that really is who we are and it's as we explore this path we find that they're inseparable that we can't separate out our personal experience from that awareness it's that in bringing awareness to the personal that we awaken and this is the bodhisattva path it's this commitment to recognize the purity of awareness the emptiness the oneness and live in this world in an engaged way, really loving this life. Thanks, yeah. So maybe um, to begin, I'd like to uh, share a story that I I love and it's from the Sufi tradition. It's called The Holy Shadow. Uh, It's about a man who was so good that the angels asked God to give him the gift of miracles And God wisely tells them to ask if that's what this man would really want himself. Mm -hmm. And so the angels visit this good man and offer him first the gift of healing by hands, then the gift of conversion of souls, and lastly, the gift of virtue. He refuses them all. They insist that he choose a gift or they will choose one for him. Very well, he replies. (laughs) I ask that I may do a great deal of good without ever knowing it. So let me read you how the story ends. The angels were perplexed. They took counsel and resolved upon the following plan. Every time the saint's shadow fell behind him, it would have the power to cure disease, soothe pain and comfort sorrow. As he walked behind him, his shadow made arid paths green, caused withered plants to bloom, gave clear water to dried up brooks, fresh color to pale children and joy to unhappy men and women. The saint simply went about his daily life, diffusing virtue as the stars diffuse light and the flower's scent, without ever being aware of it. The people, respecting his humility and love for his fellow beings, followed him silently, never speaking to him about his miracles. Soon, they even forgot his name and called him the Holy Shadow. Mm So I was touched by this story because it's really, it's very comforting uh, to think that we might be of help in ways we don't even know. That as we're here on retreat that our our prayers of care, when we bring someone to mind, in some way ripple out. Or that our smile, or that the way we open a door for (coughs) someone, just the small kindnesses that they actually touch people it's there's something in us that likes to know that that it feels good and in our daily life that that our way of listening or responding that we bring some comfort to others it just feels really good and it and it's very deep in our nature to want to help and so when we explore that well how come you know on on one level there's an ego level that of good personhood you know that that when, we, when another person feels good because of us, we feel good about ourselves. And, and we all have, everything's marbled, as Jane descri- described last night, that our intentions are marbled, that there's layers. But in a more profound way, we want to help because it expresses really who we most deeply experience ourselves to be that in, in the most basic way we feel a connectedness with each other and in the same way when if some part of our body hurting and we really want to feel soothing, we want to soothe other bodies, we care. So I could feel that today when, when Mary um, was you know dealing with with feeling dizzy and what was going on that you could just feel in the room that we we all just wanted some way to help you know there's there is that field of caring and it's kind of enlarged belonging and it feels good because in those moments we're not caught in the sense of separate selfness We're, we're really feeling our sense of being part of something larger one zen master and i I might have mentioned this to you in another talk it's one of my favorite uh, teachings said that to be enlightened is to be intimate with all things and and i love that phrase i I love the word intimate um, because in some way it's our practice is opening us to a very genuine intimacy a kind of closeness a wakefulness, a belonging with our own bodies and our hearts and each other and the earth, that that's really what's arising. And here, as we're moving through this time, we can feel it in the quietness. That when we get quiet, there's a sense of of being part of, and we go outside and smell the air or feel the sky, and there's a kind of intimacy with the earth and the sky, and then an intimacy with our own breath and in a deep way as we feel intimate there's a caring about life you know um, one of my favorite comments that the dalai lama ever made and he kind of made it off the record i don't it was in kind of a conversation with a few people he said i don't know why people like me so much then he went on to say he said it must be because i value bodhicitta that's the awakened heart mind he said i can't claim to practice it but i value it (laughs) kind of reassuring, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that even when our hearts don't feel open, that we still care about caring. I was talking about this with someone here, that, that there are times that we feel armored and disconnected, but there's still some place in us when we really check in that cares about love. And that care about is our loving. So the Bodhisattva path is really, it's a gradual but it's a fundamental shift in our sense of who we are, and it's a shift from a preoccupation with selfness, with all the fears and wants of selfness, that sense of solid, this is who I am, to a a profound sense of belonging to this web of life. That that we really are loving awareness. That's who we are, more than this separateness, more than being identified with this body, mind here that's listening, there's a sense of belonging to the awareness This just this tender wakefulness that's the field of all of us together. And I feel like this is the evolutionary shift that is really our hope for survival and peace on Earth that this is what's happening. I don't know whether the pace of it's enough to save humans from extinction or from radically defacing theirs. We don't know, but this is the hope. The Dalai Lama put it this way. He said, Compassion is, in daily life, the foundation of human hope, the source and assurance of our human future. So for most of us, when we really look at, well, what wakes up our compassion? What wakes up our compassion is when we start paying attention to where the suffering is in us. And the suffering is always around separation. Always in some deep way, there's what I think of as the trance of separation, that we're really believing separate self here. And with that, usually there's the fear and the anxiety and the loneliness. And compassion arises as we begin to let ourselves really recognize, oh, separate, hurting. And it arises as we begin to see how that plays out in every one of our relationships to the degree we feel that sense of separateness. We can see in our relationships how we get attached, how we're distrustful, how we're inclined to withdraw, to shut out, and in a deep way to blame and judge and it's all because we feel hurt and separate it becomes most intense in the moments when others don't cooperate with how we think things should be how we feel like we need to be treated and it can be very deep but i have to say that i I recently saw this at the the sunday school teacher discussing the ten commandments with her five and six year olds and after explaining the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother she asked is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters without hesitating one little boy this is the oldest of a family answered thou shalt not kill <laughs> <laughs> The strength of our feelings when others don't cooperate is a big deal. It's very, it's very humbling how entrenched we get in a sense of self and other and how quickly it flares up. Um, for many of us, you can see it most with the people that most matter, how we are absolutely rigged to re- to to react. And most people I know have like a two and a half day period that they can be with their family of origin before. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to read you something else. And this is written by um, Natalie Goldberg. And she's a, a really wonderful uh, writer and teacher in her own right. So um, here goes. She says, my parents are visiting me in my new home in Santa Fe. It is cool late July afternoon and we're sitting on the porch. Amazingly, we're not eating. We're just staring straight ahead at the high adobe wall 100 feet in front of us. We're sitting in a line. I'm in the middle. Hey Nat, my father begins, what is meditation? Well, it's hard to explain. Then, because I'm young and still incredibly foolish, I have a brilliant, daring idea. Do you want to try?" (laughs) And before they can answer, I run into the house and get a bell. Accoutrements, I think, will make it official. Okay, when I ring the bell, you just sit and feel your breath go in and out at your nose. If your mind wanders, just bring it back gently to your breath. We'll sit for ten minutes. Okay, they both say, suddenly eager, this will be fun, and they wriggle in their chairs to compose themselves. The bell sounds three times and we settle into this most ordinary thing, people breathing next to each other. My father is on my right, my mother is on my left. I cannot believe this is happening. (laughs) Here we are, all paying attention. The ten minutes feel spacious, luscious, and forever. The shade is cool, we're all quiet. This must be what heaven is. (laughs) Time is up and I ring the bell once to mark the end of meditation. Well, how was it, I ask, did you have a lot of distractions? My father shrugs his shoulders. What's the big deal? Well, did you discover how much you think? Was it hard to concentrate? Nope, I didn't have a single thought. <laughs> None, I asked surprised. not a one. Well, did you feel peaceful? Not particularly. <laughs> It was like how it always is when you don't talk. That's why human beings talk. Nothing is happening otherwise. (laughs) I turned to my mother. Well, I was aggravated the whole time about your friend. She must think I'm awful. At night, at dinner the night before, my mother had blurted out that she thought the chapters of my novel were awful and my friend Frances, who was there, told me later that my mother was jealous. I had confronted my mother that morning and she apologized profusely. I don't know what came over me. Your chapters are lovely let's try again my mother says this time i'll do it right i start to explain there's no right or wrong but instead just say okay this time i want to ring the bell my father grabs a (laughs) stick He ceremoniously hits the bell three times. We're sitting for two and a half minutes when my father suddenly belts out, hello, Dolly, well, hello, Dolly, it's so nice to have you back where you belong, while ringing the bell continuously to accompany (laughs) us. Buddy, please, my mother tries to interrupt him, struggling to reach across me to grab the bell. My father won't stop, he's having a ball. I'm the only one still staring straight ahead (laughs) at the blank adobe wall, still trying to notice my breath. I decide right then that I don't have to save my parents. They don't count as sentient beings, (laughs) they're in another category altogether. So the truth is that people rarely cooperate and often they not only don't cooperate, they f- violate our sense of how it's supposed to be. And so what happens as we each know that there are times that we can get completely stuck when we feel wounded by that in our reactivity. It's really stuck in feeling unworthy, stuck in our anger and our despair, feeling powerless. And we also know how much when we hurt other people, how also stuck we get in feeling unforgiving towards ourselves. So so in our relationships, the whole experience of I'm separate and I'm not okay, plays itself out in a very visible way. and it And it plays itself out over and over again in our lives as we know. So this again, part of this bodhisattva path is that what starts opening up the compassion is the willingness to see those patterns and then begin to pay attention to the place where the vulnerability lives. But it's not just happening in our individual relationships. The same reactivity of woundedness and lashing out of blame is going on globally, as we all know, and we're watching, some of us with real fear or sometimes despair, how the cycles of violence are with humans torturing each other and imprisoning and killing each other with a a society so bent on making war and consuming that we're not even beginning to meet the needs of the people that most need attention. We we do belong to a very violent society. So we're seeing it, we see it in our own hearts, the lashing out, we see it in a society that out of fear and, and, and greed is consuming in a way and polluting in a way that's really um, destroying the earth and and i bring it up because we can feel it in our nervous systems it's you know it's something that we that we're feeling it's if if we're feeling a sense of of depression or powerlessness or grief it's in part due to the way that we're picking up the violence in our world and in particular feeling the earth you know that, that that species are going extinct that we'll never see again. And it's happening regularly, just in this time that we're here together. Um, The momentum is so fast. I'll read you. uh, This is Wendell Berry. He says, it is the destruction of the world in our own lives that drives us half insane and more than half. To destroy that which we were given in trust, how will we bear it? So the magnitude is hard to let ourselves go near Um, the realness of the suffering of the earth, of other humans, and even if we really get down to it, it's very, very hard to bear the, the fullness of our own suffering, the fears and the losses. So the bodhisattva path is grounded in a willingness to let ourselves be touched by our own suffering and the suffering of the world it's a real willingness and the understanding is that as we let ourselves be touched our circles of care widen it's arelka says it beautifully he says i live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world i may never complete the last one but i give myself to it I just think that's such a beautiful image, to um, sense that we're waking up to realize our belonging to, widen, to widening circles, and that you know we still might get caught in selfness, and we might not fully you know, recognize our belonging all the time, but there's this willingness to be touched and to keep recognizing the truth that we're part of this world, this mysterious web of life, and that it's natural to care. So it begins, and it begin, and this is where our practice here is, it begins in this willingness to open to the life that's right here. And that's what we've been doing this last four days, over and over again. We use the breath or some anchor to, to begin to quiet the mind so that we can pay attention. But the, the essence, the juice of the practice is, we open to what's here. We open to the different layers of our experience. It's said that the heart of Buddhism is compassion, and the heart of compassion is compassion for ourselves. In other words, we, we can't genuinely feel tenderness to the whole of life if we're not opening to what's really moving through us right, right here, right now. So last night, James talked about intention, and it was a, I found it really a powerful talk, just the sense of if we can remember what matters, if we can really remember what we care about and, and live from that caring, our whole life begins to be organized around it in a way that's transforming. And, and the bodhisattva path is grounded in aspiration. The bodhisattva path begins with the aspiration, and, and I think this is really, really incredibly useful, that whatever circumstances arise, may this serve the awakening of my heart and mind whatever arises, whatever's going on. And one of the first insights we have when we encounter unpleasantness, and I'm sure each of you has seen it over these last few days, the first thing that happens when physical unpleasantness comes up or fear or whatever is we want to get rid of it and even after we've realized, oh, it's, this is what I should be with, we're still bargaining, we're still being with it so it'll go away, right? I mean, I said, I mean, we, we, we have this you know, aversion and it's the way we were rigged, to want to fix it, get rid of it, avoid it. I saw a cartoon about six months ago and it had three people in heaven and they're exchanging their stories and one of them said, well, it was an incredibly healing experience but somehow I still wound up dead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like we are willing to be with it, but we really want it to be better so we, nothing really bad happens. And um, so we bargain with our experience. And probably the biggest thing that goes on when something difficult comes up, the way we first and most profoundly distance ourselves is we judge it like it shouldn't be happening. In other words, instead of letting the suffering touch us or being with it, I shouldn't be experiencing this, this is bad, it's my fault or it's your fault, but we in some way judge so that we don't have to directly experience it. So as I mentioned two nights ago, compassion begins to arise in the moment that we can go, ouch, this hurts we can pause, put aside any notion of I should or should not be experiencing this, you caused it, whatever, it, one step removed, the blaming, and just go, ouch, this hurts. And in the moments that we do that, it begin, we, It's Pema Chodron calls it that we're connecting with the soft spot. Then there's a tenderness in response. So just to try on this aspiration, this is kind of the ground of the path, whatever arises, so you might just take a moment and uh, let your attention go inward. And just to let this be a pause, because sometimes we're listening to talks and we kind of disconnect from our bodies. So just arrive. Just let this be another moment to practice coming home, to feel your breath and your body. and to allow yourself to bring to mind a difficult life situation. Any circumstance in your life that is pretty current in the way that it brings up strong and difficult emotions. It might be something in a relationship, some conflictual thing. Something that another person is doing in their life that you're really makes you really worried and upset. It might be your own behaviors, maybe addictive behaviors, but just to bring to life, mind some circumstances that are current that really um, arouse a reactivity and sense the strength of that, the realness. And then just try on this aspiration, just notice what happens when you, with as much sincerity as possible, have that intent. May this serve to awaken my heart and mind. May this be part of the path of awakening. You might frame it as an inquiry, how might this serve awakening? (coughs) If I were to really open to the soft spot, the, the difficult place, how might this serve awakening? It said that The personal carries us to the universal. That it's when we bring a tender and full presence to what's most difficult that we touch into that openness and compassion. And in the deepest way, there's a shift in identity that we can begin to notice with the bodhisattva aspiration. That rather than lodging in or digging our heels in to this notion of oh this situation's bad i'm at war with it i want it to change instead our sense of who we are enlarges to become the awareness or compassion that's just being with i think it's beautifully signified by the putting the hand on the heart it's like okay may this serve awakening This is uh, a poem by David White called The Will of Grief because so many of our circumstances that we're fighting have to do with loss and change. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning downward through its black water to the place we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear and are find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So this aspiration made this circumstance, this situation, serve to awaken. And there's this recognition that whatever's going on is perfectly designed to really serve our freedom if we bring in presence, no matter what it is. And what we find is that as we open to what's going on, let's say we open to our loss and really grieve deeply, in a way, if, you, if you're looking into the eyes of somebody that's grieved deeply, you can sense there's really no defense, there's no real um, pushing away because they can be intimate because there's nothing left to lose, they've already opened to loss. We become that openness when we've been with what's difficult. It's the same thing with fear. When you're with somebody that's really, really faced vulnerability, it's an invitation to be with your own vulnerability, because there's a sense of space and of that wisdom that knows there is room. I sometimes think of it like um, ice melting, that when we begin to melt the ice of our own resistances, it encourages other people's ice to melt kind of becomes a party of dissolving
1: ice cubes or
0: something but there's really it is kind of contagious and what we realize as we open to what's there inside us the vulnerability that we're not practicing to free a separate self that really that we open and we discover really our belonging to all beings it's not my fear I'm opening to it's just the fear and that we're really opening in a way that we can hold the world in our hearts, and so this leads to the most well-known um, part of the Bodhisattva aspiration, which is really through timeless existence. May this life serve the awakening and freedom of all beings. <coughs> may this life serve the awakening of all beings, and it can sound grandiose if we think we're a separate self that's going to be heroic, and yet it sound and yet it resonates as the truth of what is happening when we realize we belong to all beings, what else is there to do? What else is there to do other than care and respond to that sense of connectedness? So to support this aspiration, the bodhisattva takes on certain trainings of the heart and mind because the given is our conditioning is really thick to feel self and other. It's really thick and so it takes training but we're not training to become someone different. We're training to come home to the truth of who we are. There was a, a woman in DC who was taking care of her grandmother who's in her mid-80s and um, you know experiencing dementia and her grandmother had asked her to help her out and to help her remember her grandchildren's names. She had five of them. And they'd practice and on a good day she'd get three to four and they were just in this process together daily kind of remembering the names. Really it was it was it was sweet. And one day she came in and, and she asked her, you know, what her grandchildren's names were. And her grandma looked at her and said, Do you ever eat sauteed almonds? And this woman answered, Well, no, why? And the grandma patted her hand gently and said, Oh dear, you should. It would help your memory. <laughs> I thought that was great because, in a way, this woman—you know—through sickness, through her mind going, but this kind of fundamental quality of kindness—it just it lived through her. Yeah, because because we do get so caught in our, our separateness, and we get removed from our kindness. We get caught up. We we take on practices that help us to see more clearly, and remember that connection. So, we'll do just a brief reflection. We're actually going to do a couple, but for right now, just close your eyes if you will. And bring to mind someone who's close to you. Someone at home, family, friend, someone that's close to you. And just take a few moments to think about that person, you know, just to recall them bring them here a sense what they're like you know what what they look like what activities they enjoy how they speak you might review the last time you were together just to think about this person So this person's in your mind. and and now just take a moment to shift and bring your attention to your own experience right this moment to your experience, your awareness of sensations of sounds. Perhaps sensing where feelings of vulnerability, our happiness live. whatever is true right now, just to be aware. Be aware of being aware. And to then sense that this person that you were just reflecting on is more like this, this subjectivity, this awareness, this awareness of sensation and sound, of sorrow, of beingness, than any idea that we might have about them that we fix on our ideas and forget the subjectivity. It's as T.S. Eliot writes in his poem, The Cocktail Party, what we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them and they have changed since then. We must also remember that at every meeting we are meeting a stranger. So when we go through our day and especially when there's a busyness and we're in that chronic on my way somewhere else, we think about others and it's our ideas about them. We're even with them and we're not paying deep attention to the realness of the subjective experience of that person. So the bodhisattva training is to reconnect to our heart and to kind of break through the daily trance of self and other. And this is the essence of the metta and karuna. The metta, loving kindness, to see the goodness that's there. The karuna, to see the vulnerability that's there. And yet, what we find is that, especially when we're stressed, we really get into what I call the unreal other. That the people that we encounter when we're stressed are either an obstacle to getting where we want to go. In other words, they're in the way, they're causing trouble. Okay. In which case, there's a kind of pushing away. Are they irrelevant? They don't matter to us. In which case, inattention. Or else, they're an object that might satisfy one of our needs for attention, or approval, or nurturing. In which case, there's holding on. But in either case, they're an object. We're still not experiencing from the inside what, what's going on and who they are. And that's when we're stressed. I remember. Um, one woman described being at the uh, at the end of a retreat and that the deal is that when once we've locked into unreal other we're not picking up new information it's like the cocktail party where they're just we're not registering so one woman describes leaving a retreat and she had done a lot of these practices but she was at the airport and very stressed because she had um, had to switch planes and she was laden with luggage and so she went to buy, to get a cup of coffee and a small package of cookies. She goes to an unoccupied table, she's waiting for her next flight, reading the the paper and she becomes aware of someone rustling at her table. From behind her paper, she's flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed young man helping himself to her cookies. (laughs) Now she doesn't wanna make a scene, so she leans across and takes a cookie herself. A minute or so passed, more rustling. He was helping himself to another cookie. Okay, by the time they were down to the last cookie in the packet, she was very angry but still could not bring herself to say anything. Then the young man broke the cookie in two, pushed half across to her, ate the other half, and left. <laughs> Sometime later, when the public address system called for her to present her ticket, she's still fuming. Imagine her embarrassment when she opens her handbag and is confronted by her package of cookies. <laughs> she has eating his. <laughs> so when someone's locked into unreal other we don't pay attention that that doesn't mean that sometimes people don't really do things that are very harmful but the point is that we are not really seeing who's there and it's a trance and here's why it's a trance I mentioned the other night is that we fixate on a narrow sliver or band of what we think's real, and we're forgetting something. And we do it with most everybody, that when we are bringing someone to mind, we're fixated on something narrow, and most importantly, we're forgetting the vulnerability that one writer puts it, um, be kind, everyone you meet is struggling hard. You know, we just forget. And we forget the the goodness. We forget that this being wants to love and be loved. We forget this being too wants to awaken and be free. So it, this is the trance of separation. And in a way, the whole of the bodhisattva path is to learn to see what's true. Learn to see, learn to kind of pull the veil of, you know, so we can see past our conditioning because wherever we go, we have so much unconscious conditioning. Some of you might have read Blink. Did some of you read Blink? It's, it's a really, yeah. It's it, it it describes how much program we have to, to automatically make categories of others and, and not pick up beyond the categories. I'll share another story with you that um, was an important one for me on this path. And the, the preface to the story is that um, I mentioned I, I don't know if I mentioned I grew up Unitarian, and so on for many years, in a row, on Christmas Eve, we'd go to you know, family, our family's church. And one year we went, and we went with a, a close family friends. Uh, one one of, the, of that family young man had um, slight brain damage, and he was a little bit off-beat, and, um, but he was a dear, dear friend of the family. It was really fun for us all to go together, and he sat next to me, and I'll tell you why you'll know in a moment why I'm telling you this. The minister read a story, and this is, this is I'll read it to you, and it's written by a Unitarian minister. It's a true story. It was Sunday, Christmas. Our family had spent the holidays in San Francisco with my husband's parents, but in order for us to be back to work on Monday, we found ourselves driving the 400 miles home to Los Angeles on Christmas day. It was normally an eight hour drive, but with our kids, it could be a 14-hour endurance test. We could stand, when we could stand it no longer, we stopped for lunch in King City. This little metropolis is made up of six gas stations and three diners, and it was into one of those that the four of us trooped. As I sat Eric, our one-year-old, in a high chair, I looked around the room and wondered, what am I doing in this place? The restaurant was nearly empty. We were the only family, and ours were the only children. Everyone else was busy eating, talking quietly, aware perhaps that we were all somehow out of place on this special day. My reverie was interrupted when I heard Eric squeal with glee, hi there, two words he thought were one, hi there. He pounded his fat baby hands, whack, whack, on the high metal high chair tray. His face was alive with excitement, eyes wide, gums bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and chirped and giggled and then I saw the source of his merriment and my eyes could not take it in all at once. A tattered rag of a coat, obviously bought by someone else eons ago, dirty, greasy, and warm. Baggy pants, both they and the zipper at half-mask, over a spindly body. Toes that poked out of would-be shoes, a shirt that had a ring around the collar all over, and a face like none other. Gums as bare as Eric's, hair uncombed, unwashed, whiskers too short to be called a beard, but way, way beyond a shadow, and a nose so varicose it looked like the map of New York. I was too far away to smell him, but I knew he smelled, and his hands were waving in the air, flapping about on loose wrists. Hi there, baby. Hi there, big boy. I see you, buster. My husband and I exchanged a look that was a cross between what do we do and poor devil. Eric continued to laugh and answer, hi there. Every call was <laughs> echoed. I noticed waitresses' eyebrows shoot to their foreheads and several people sitting near us hemmed out loud. This old geezer was creating a nuisance with my beautiful baby. I shoved a cracker at Eric and he pulverized it on the tray. I whispered, why me, under my breath. Our meal came and the nuisance continued. Now the old bum was shouting from across the room, Do you know Patty Cake? boy. do you know Peekaboo? Hey look, he knows Peekaboo. Nobody thought it was cute. This guy was probably a drunk and definitely a disturbance. I was embarrassed. My husband, Dennis, was humiliated. Even our six-year-old said, why is that old man talking so loud? We ate in silence, except Eric, who was running through his repertoire for the admiring applause of a skid row bum. (laughs) Finally, I had enough. I turned the high chair and Eric screamed and clamored around to face his old buddy. (laughs) Now I was really mad. Dennis went to pay the check, imploring me to get Eric and meet me in the parking lot. I trundled Eric out of the high chair and looked toward the exit. The old man sat poised and waiting, his chair directly between me and the door. Lord, just let me out of here. Before he speaks to me or Eric, I headed toward the door. As soon, It soon became apparent that both the Lord and Eric had other plans. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back walking to sidestep him in any air he might be breathing. As I did so, Eric all the while, with his eyes riveted to his best friend, leaned far over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. In a split second of balancing my baby and turning to counter his weight, I came eye to eye with the old man. Eric was lunging for him, eyes, arms spread wide. The bum's eyes both asked and implored, would you let me hold your baby? There was no need for me to answer since Eric propelled himself from my arms to the (laughs) man's. Suddenly, a very old man and a very young baby were involved in a love relationship. Eric laid his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder. The man's eyes closed and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine. He said in a firm, commanding tone, you take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will, from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he was in pain. I held my arms open to receive my baby, and again the gentleman addressed me. God bless you, ma'am, you've given me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. Dennis wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly and why I was saying, my God, my God, forgive me. So I wanted to share with you that I, so we listened to this as part of the um, service and um, the young man who was sitting next to me, um, was weeping and weeping and we got outside and he said that man you know in that story that man was me and I realized what it was like you know he, he it was kind of mild brain damage but it's always kept him he's functional but it's always kept him you know a little bit on the margins and he's always known that people kind of pick it up and treat him in a certain way and we talked and we they came over to our house after You know, we all of us were talking and realized it really was all of us. You know, we've all at times felt that we weren't seen. I mean, for us, many of us, a lot of times. and um, And we've all moved through this world with ideas about others, and sometimes we're lucky enough to get that corrected and to see a bigger picture, to step out of the trance. But often... I mean, I know for myself how many days I go through in some way not really registering the beingness of someone, in some way having some more shallow or narrow idea and living out of that and missing the opportunity for realness and being awake. So the question is really if we can imagine what it would be like if we slowed down and deepened our attention and really looked to see who was there this poem, Kindness, before you learn the tender gravity of kindness. You must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who traveled through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. So how do we respond once we look into the eyes of other and and sense the the sameness and the suffering and the vulnerability is really um, presence? We offer our presence. It's as Thich Nhat Hanh said in that phrase, "Darling, I care about this suffering." That that really we're just saying, "I'm here," you know. I care. Our presence, our full attention, is the deepest expression of love when we really show up. There's one physician described in his experience of, um, he worked in the city hospital, and there was a homeless woman who would visit him regularly with mental illness, and she'd be very confused often, and and talk, kind of ramble to him with the details of a difficult life. And all he could do really, he said, was care about her, just to listen and care about her and whatever he could to relieve her burden, but it was mostly just caring about her. And he described how sometimes she would come on days, he'd find out that she came on days when he wasn't there to the office, and that um, she knew he wasn't there, but she just wanted to go to his consulting room. And she would never go in. What she did was she'd stand on the threshold and slowly and deliberately just put her right foot inside the empty room and then just withdraw it. And she'd do it again and again, just put her foot in and withdraw it. And then after a while, she'd be satisfied and go away. And I thought that was really powerful because, you know, when we feel seen and cared for, we feel blessed and the places where that happens become sacred places and we naturally return to them. And that's really what we're training to be able to offer ourselves and each other is that kind of unconditional presence. So, um, do just another brief reflection and then there's one more little piece after that. Again, just to pause and really this, this practice of just come home to what's here, to feel your body and your heart. To bring to mind someone in your life who's struggling, who's having a hard time. Just to sense what it might be like for them right now. It's like as Henry David Thoreau said that the the most profound miracles to look through another's eyes even for a moment. Just to just to imagine life from the inside for this person. The disappointment, the fear, the sense of loss. <laughs> and feel that you're with them right now and that you're offering your full presence. You can just mentally whisper, I care about your suffering or imagine your hand on that person's cheek. Just to be willing to feel the realness of that person's experiencing and to care, to offer presence. And you might sense that person feeling and receiving your care. and that really you're offering presence not from any sort of superior or distant place, but just with this awareness that it's, it's the suffering, it's the human suffering. The poet Niki Giovanni says, and if ever I touched a life, I hope that life knows that I know that touching was and still is and always will be the true revolution. That to offer our presence awakens us to the the truth of our togetherness, (coughs) releases us from the trance. So this is the most basic offering we make, this way of, of being willing to sense what's true, sense the vulnerability and open to it. But I, I'd like to say as a kind of a f- final portion of a Bodhisattva talk, that it's very easy to fixate on the pain, to look at others and our look at ourselves and get very habituated to pulling the veils, but just looking towards the vulnerability. And that our training is also to see the goodness and to, to celebrate the goodness, to feel the blessings of the goodness. and and of the of the life itself. And I, I read you a story of a, a new young monk arrives at the monastery. He's assigned to help the other monks in copying the old canons and the laws of the church by hand. But he notices that all of the monks are copying from copies, not the original manuscript. So the new monk goes to the abbot to question this, pointing out that if someone made even a small error in the first copy, it would never be picked up. In fact, that error would be continued in all the subsequent copies. The abbot says, well, we've been copying from copies for centuries, but you make a good point, my son. So he goes down into the dark caves under the monastery where the original manuscript is held in locked vault that hasn't been opened for hundreds of years. Hours go by and nobody sees the old abbot. Eventually the young monk gets worried and goes downstairs to look for him. He sees him banging his head against the wall and crying uncontrollably. The young monk asks the old abbot, Father, Father, what's wrong? In a choking voice, the old abbot replies, the word is celebrate, not celibate. <laughs> so one of the most basic elements of the bodhisattva path, it's, it's really to see truth. It's to awaken from the trance. Now, part of the trance is that it's this world, is this, like, all there is is suffering. So to see the truth of the beauty and the mystery and the willingness to celebrate that. And in the most basic way, that means to look at each other and celebrate the goodness that we see in each other, the beauty that we see in each other. It is the greatest gift, this mirroring, that every one of us forgets. I don't know anybody that doesn't forget and doesn't need each other to remind us of what's true and that's, that's the depth of our friendship one of the um, Naomi Rachel Remen who, a uh, wonderful physician and writer, describes how when she, she, her grandfather died when she was seven years old and she said that she had never lived in a world without him in it before and it was hard for her and this is what she writes he had looked at me as no one else had and called me by a special name Neshumala which means little beloved soul. There's no one left to call me this anymore. At first I was afraid that without him to see me and tell God who I was, I might disappear. But slowly over time I came to understand that in some mysterious way, I had learned to see myself through his eyes and that once blessed, we are blessed forever. Many years later, when in her extreme old age, my mother surprisingly began to light candles and talk to God herself, I told her about these blessings and what they had meant to me. She had smiled at me sadly. I have blessed you every day of your life, Rachel, she told me. I just never had the wisdom to do it out loud. So you know this word namaste, the the root of namaste namo is I bow, and it's I bow to the divine that's in you. And I sometimes just think, you know, in, in, in our country we say, hi, how are you? And in Asia, it's namaste. It's a little different vibration, but what if we... But really, what if we move through this life and there was really this practice of namaste, of looking at each other, and really as we looked into each other's eyes, sensing the one looking back, is that same awareness, that same tenderness. I mean, what if we had the nerve and the intent and the willingness to slow down and do that. It'd be quite beautiful. Thomas Meriden says, life is this simple. We're living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a nice story or fable, it is true. So this is the journey of spirit that we're in, that we practice this practice here of really quieting down enough so we can learn to stay, so we can be with what's here, so we can touch the vulnerability that's here, and also discover that as we're present, (coughs) as we're present in a moment, that we realize that who we are is that presence that our sense of identity enlarges and rather being the self that's trying to control things or fight things or blame ourselves or blame others, we start resting in the truth of that goal, that radiance that I described of the Buddha a couple nights ago, that, that our very nature is radiance, that this luminosity, this tenderness, this openness is who we are. So the bodhisattva path is a, has a training. It has a training to see past that conditioning that creates self, a deficient self, other, a deficient other, and begins to recognize both the humanity and the real divinity, the beauty that's inside each person. I'd like to close by just saying that at one of the first retreats I ever went to with Thich Han. He taught a, uh, a hug that I have loved. And in this hug you begin by looking at the other and saying namaste and you know, sensing the divine, the goodness that's there. And then you hold each other and with the first in-breath and out-breath you're reflecting, I'm going to die. And the second in-breath and out-breath, you're going to die. And then and the third, and we have these precious moments together. The reason, what I find is so helpful is that this bodhisattva path is recognizing what's true and part of what's true is that it's very fleeting this life and that when we can remember that we don't have very long these moments and the time with each other becomes very precious and it motivates us to see past the veil past that separation of self and other to that togetherness to that field of of presence and kindness that really is who we are. So as a final reflection now, if you will, just to close your eyes and take a few moments to bring to mind someone who is very dear to you. and just sensing what you love. And as you are meditating on this person, you might bring in that (coughs) spirit of that hug of just sensing, I'm going to die. You're going to die. And we have these moments and to really let yourself be aware of the radiance and the goodness of this being. To offer your full presence, to offer whatever blessing you'd like to. And to feel now just the purity of this open-heartedness, that this heart, this field of loving can really hold all beings, that it awakens in our personal relationships but we discover that there's an unconditional quality. It's just tenderness. It really is a tenderness and an openness that can hold all of life. Thomas Merton says, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depth of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge could reach, the core of reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the Divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war, for hatred, for greed, for cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. May our hearts touch all beings. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.